I have the, uh, the distinct pleasure of preaching through the book of Judges on Sunday mornings at our church over the past couple of months. And um, it's very interesting. Tim says I'm a, I'm a joyful person. Preaching through Judges will knock that out of just about anybody. Uh, as we're going to see today, as I was joking with Josh before, um, in God's providence, the particular Sundays when I end up coming, a lot of times what ends up happening is, um, I, I check with Tim if it's okay if I preach what the Lord's been putting on my heart for our church and share that with you guys, and he says, yeah, go for it, and it just so happens that um, this morning uh, with our church, we were in the end of Judges, and what is possibly for me in um, I don't know if it's just, I know it's not just me. Uh, this is one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible to get your head around. Um, and so what I want to do is take a few moments at the beginning. We're going to read. Um, I want to try to cover as, as best we can these, these three chapters of 19, 20, 21. And the reason why I want to do that is because it's, it's clear in the narrative. It's, it's a story, and it's one story that's told as, as a whole. And so I want to take it as a whole because that's, I think, what the author wants us to receive. So what I'm going to do at the beginning for us is just I'm going to read several sections. We're not going to read the whole thing. Uh, and then we'll dive into, into it together and ask what the Lord would have us see here this afternoon. But let's read from Judges chapter 19. So please take your Bible and follow along with me. I'll instruct you where to look as we read, as we pick up the story, we're going to start reading in verse 10 of Judges 19. So far, what's happened is there's a Levite who has been traveling, and in particular, he has been traveling to go get his concubine back. The woman who is sort of functioning as a pseudo wife for him has gotten angry at him and left him and gone to be with her father, and so he's gone back to go reclaim her. There's been reconciliation. And now he is on his way with his concubine back to his home. And um, the father has been pressing on him to stay and spend another night, but he says, no, we're going. So in chapter 19, verse 10, but the man, the Levite, would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. The narrative continues. Finally, there's an old man who's actually not from that town, but is sojourning in that town. And he takes them into his house, insisting that they not spend the night in the town square. And we begin to understand why in verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter. And his concubine, let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not commit this outrageous thing. 
But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. And he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. The people of Israel come out, the text says, at the beginning of chapter 20, from Dan to Beersheba, from top to bottom and from Gilead, all the way on the other side of the Jordan, 400,000 men And they are, as it says, three times united as one man in their purpose of repaying Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So they go into battle in chapter 20 against the people of Benjamin once and then twice and endure the loss of 40,000 men until in verse 28, they ask of God again, on, before the third day, shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. The battle is described, this time they set an ambush, and in verse 35 we're told, the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword, so the people of Benjamin saw they were defeated people of Israel also went through all the towns of Benjamin and slaughtered the people in the towns, the cities as well, so that by the end of chapter 20, all that's left of the tribe of Benjamin is 600 men hiding in a rock, in a cave. In chapter 21, the people begin to feel sorry, the Israelites begin to feel sorry for Benjamin for what they've done, and they realize that there needs to be women provided for them so that the tribe can continue. Where should they look for brides? Chapter 21, verse 8. They said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimmon, and proclaimed peace to them. 
And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women who they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead. But they were not enough for them, and the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is a yearly fast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south to Labona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we, we long to see what you would have us see from this text today. As hard as it is, we pray that your spirit would grant grace, give us wisdom, give us discernment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a short list of things that I'm good at, and I have a long list of things that I'm not so good at. Two of the things on the list that I'm not so good at are singing songs and playing games, which is a shame because it makes for a bit of a lousy childhood because you like to sing songs and play games. I remember one song that I learned, and I thought it was a game, was that, you know, you're supposed to do that, um, like, hand bone connected to the wrist bone, you know, you go through that song. I tried doing that just even the other day, and I only got here because I couldn't remember what the bone is actually for the forearm. I'm still really bad at it. I couldn't have any fun with it. But if I was to ask you a question, maybe you'd do better. The eye bone is connected to the, and, and at that point you go, wait a second, you really are bad at this. The eye is not a bone, you silly person. Of course the eye is not a bone. But what is it connected to? Biblically, the eye is connected straight to the heart. The center of real-time evaluation of right and wrong and good and bad. It's as if if our body were a business, a production company, the eye would in some sense be the quality assurance department. It's constantly evaluating, monitoring, taking in and assessing what's good and what's not good. It's also our asset acquisition department. It goes out and finds what is good and brings it to us. Or maybe you could picture it as the research and development department, constantly trying to discern what it is we should get, what it is we should go after, and then making its recommendations to your heart, which is the executive center of decision-making. The eye bone is connected to the heart bone. The problem is our eyes don't work properly. I remember, I don't know why we had a scale like this, but when I was... When I was little, we had a scale that you could adjust where zero was, which was great, because then you could make yourself as heavy or as light as you want. All you had to do was adjust the zero. You could just recalibrate the thing any time. And then the problem, of course, is then your scale is basically worthless. 
But, but what happens is our eyes, if our eyes are a scale, if they're discerning, if they're determining, if they're weighing and evaluating, they function much like that scale that we had. If it's not calibrated to zero, then no matter what it interprets, no matter what it determines, the judgments will be skewed. That's why it's a big deal when in the scriptures we act according to what is pleasing in our eyes, what is right in our eyes, as opposed to the eyes, the sight of Yahweh, of God, who is always calibrated to the right weight. The most condemning phrase in the book of Judges that's repeated again and again throughout the book, I want to show you just a couple times. If you look at Judges 3, right from the beginning of the narratives of when the judges begin to come, I'll just give you a taste for it. In Judges 3 and verse 7, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 12, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You, you see the evaluation that's going on here, right? Over the course of time, every time the people need a new deliverer raised up, it's because they're doing what's evil in the sight of Yahweh. But what becomes clear and tremendously sad is the reason why they're doing it is not because they think, oh, this is wrong, but because what's wrong in the sight of Yahweh is right in their eyes. This becomes very clear with Samson, the final one of the judges. In Judges chapter 16, Samson wants a wife, or he wants a woman for him, and so, or not Judges chapter 16, sorry, rather Judges chapter 13, and when, when he when he tells his parents that he wants a Philistine wife, which is significant, right? A, light, a wife of the land. It had already been revealed to God's people that they were off limits, that this was wrong. But Samson's justification for why he should get this woman. But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And again, in chapter 14 and verse 7, then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. In his evaluation, in his estimation, he determined what was right and wrong, and he determined that this woman was good, regardless of what was right and wrong in Yahweh's eyes. That's the way that the people have been functioning. And then in the epilogue, at the end of the book, from chapters 17 through 21, the whole section is bracketed with this phrase that's repeated. Chapter 17 and verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then 21-25. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. From beginning to end, everything that goes wrong in this book is the people are functioning by what is right in their own eyes rather than what is right in the evaluation of God. Himself. So our eye bones are connected to our heart bones and they cannot be trusted. It's important to think about this, right? Because no matter when, what story it is from the book of Judges, as you read and as you make your way through and you think, that sounds wrong. The people are going into sin. They're pursuing what's evil. You need to realize that they're not pursuing it thinking this is evil, but they are fully convinced, each one in their own mind, that what they are pursuing is actually right. And so what we want to do this morning is give our, or this afternoon rather, is give ourselves a bit of an eye check a checkup, a vision test to see if we're actually seeing this, if our eyes are functioning correctly. We want to end with the author of the book of Judges making the same conclusions that he makes. We want to see the things that he wants us to see, that God himself wants us to see. But before we ask ourselves, okay, so what are those things that we need to see clearly, the conclusions that we need to make, I want to take just a couple minutes again 
and make sure that we're seeing clearly what's happening as this narrative unfolds. So if you want a title, maybe for each of the chapters, chapter 19, you could title this way. There's lots of different options. One of them would be Gibeah's Outrageous Sin. Again, the narrative as we've read it, the Levite goes and... and This is actually a bit of a refreshing narrative by the time you come to the end of Judges because by the time you get to the end of Judges there have been so many negative examples and so many bad things that now you find this father-in-law who welcomes him into his home and shows great hospitality and lavishes on him. Take my food, take my drink, be in my house, stay longer. And he urges him to stay, stay longer, stay longer. It's lavish hospitality. Of course, then we find out that he's being set up as a a foil character, the opposite of what's about to happen. In this tragic decision, the Levite, on his way, decides not to go into the town of the Jebusites because they're not Israelites. They won't show us hospitality. They won't welcome us in. Who knows what they'll do to us? Let's go to a town of Israelites because the Israelites are supposed to be different than the Canaanites. But then he finds himself standing in the open square, not welcomed by anyone. No one to welcome him at the gates. No one invites him into his house. He's standing in the middle of the square with nowhere to go until finally an old man comes in who's not actually from this town and urges him not to stay in the city square. He says, come, come into my house. I will take care of you. You can picture the scene then as they go into the house and they sit down and they're eating. They're sharing stories. They're getting to know one another. They're talking through life. And as the conversation's unfolding, the Levite might have in the back of his mind somewhere, I wonder why no one brought me in. And I wonder why this man didn't want me to stay in the town square so badly. And if he had read his Bible, like, say, Genesis chapter 19 and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which, by the way, is described almost verbatim with the exact same words, he might have been suspicious. But as it is, he's just eating and making merry. They're enjoying conversation. They're having a good time. And as they're sitting and conversing, Maybe you start to hear some noise. Maybe it sounds like there's a crowd gathering. Maybe you see someone run by a window or something, and you think, what is going on? And then you hear, they're thumping on the door, and they're calling. And you realize the house is surrounded in this strange town where no one wanted you. What do they want now? Do they want my donkeys? Do they want my money? Are they here to take my servants? What they're after is sexual sin of the most heinous and vile sort. They want to rape and humiliate and shame this man. I don't know what I would be thinking in that moment. I don't know what I would be feeling. I'm sure fear would be right near the top of that list. I'm a father of four daughters. I can tell you there is one thing I would absolutely not be thinking. I cannot conceive of a scenario, I cannot conceive of any situation ever in which I would say, hey, you know what, I'm in trouble and I don't want myself to be harmed, so I'm going to take my young daughter and I'm going I'm to throw her out there and let her be harmed instead of me or my wife. But we behold the depths of depravity as both of the men in the house have the same idea, starting with the host. Oh no, they want the man? Let's just give him the women. Are you kidding me? I have a virgin daughter, he says, which means she's really young because they marry really young, so she's not married. She's not marriageable age yet. 
Here, take her. And, and here's this guy's concubine, too. I'll offer her up as well. Violate them, he says, and do with them what seems good to you. Do with them what seems good in your eyes. Take them and go ahead and do what you want. But that's not enough. The men would not listen, it says. So the man seizes his concubine, he grabs her, and he forces her out the door. I cannot imagine what that scene looks like. What it would take to get her out that door. But he does it. I'm thankful to God the text doesn't go into any more graphic detail than it does. It just says they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. This This is one of the most disturbing scenes I can imagine. They finally let her go after all that she's endured for the night and she has just enough strength to make it back to the house, up to the door, not enough strength to get into the door, or perhaps she tried but it was still locked from when they put her out and she can't get back in so she falls at the threshold of the door and lays there with her hands on the threshold grasping for the house that had promised her safety where the man who had promised her safety the two men her host and her husband had both apparently been sleeping soundly verse 27 says her master rose up in the morning rose up in the morning how in the world did this guy sleep was there not sounds of screaming? Was there nothing that he heard? He just goes to sleep knowing what's going on outside the doors? To make matters worse, it's as if he was just going to go on his way. The text describes him. He's going to set on his way. I've got to get back home. I don't know where this woman is. Oh, look, there she is. She's outside my door. Well, come on, get up, he says. Let's get going. As if nothing has happened. This is an outrageous sin all around. But do you know, every time I've read this before now, I've assumed that the woman was actually dead by the time the man comes out in the morning. But the text doesn't say that. It just says there was no answer. And it's certainly a curious thing why he would pick up his dead concubine and put her on his donkey and bring her all the way home. But the picture just gets almost unbearable then to consider what this actually means. Does he just take her home in her state until he decides what next? And this is his decision? The text is unclear on the chronology But this is an outrageous sin. And it brings an outrageous response, or a response rather, of outrage. So a title for chapter 20 would be Outrage at Gibeah's Sin. The people of Israel from top to bottom and all the way from Gilead, when they receive in the mail the limbs of this woman that had been severed, they say nothing like this has ever happened in our people from all the time we came up from Egypt until now. And so they gather, the text says three times, as one man. This is remarkable. Because all the way through the book of Judges, it's been about this tribe doing this and this tribe doing this and everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. There's never been, since the time of Judges, any time when the people of Israel have acted as one man like this. So it seems like there's a glimmer of hope. One of the big failings of all the Judges is they had not been able to bring God's people together in this common mission of conquest. And now, finally, the people are gathered together as one man. So does that mean things are getting better? 400,000 soldiers. 
and they go into war. Who shall go up for us? They cast lots. The lots speak on behalf of Yahweh. Judah shall go up against Benjamin. They go up the first day, and 22,000 soldiers die of the supposed good guys. They go up another day, 18,000 die. They weep and go back again the third day. Finally, victory comes, and they devote the town to destruction till there was nothing left but the 600 men. Which kind of leaves you with a question. Was what they did right? They begin to regret it. They responded with outrage at this sin, and they carried out their mission of defeating Benjamin down to just about 600 men, But now, in chapter 21, what looked like there could possibly be a glimmer of hope for the people of Israel, we now find there is an outrageous covering of Gibeah's sin. See, Gibeah is one city in the tribe of Benjamin. And the reason why Israel is attacking the whole tribe of Benjamin is because they were trying to cover up Gibeah's sin. But now Israel, who had gone after Gibeah for their sin, now feels bad for Benjamin and seeks to cover them. They even put the blame on Yahweh in chapter 21 and verse 15. The people had compassion on Benjamin because Yahweh had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. What? This is Yahweh's fault? But they feel for them. They feel for the Benjaminites. It's their younger brother, the youngest tribe, and now they're reduced to this. And, and so what do they need? Well, it's, 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 it's almost like the animals at the zoo. You know, you get these endangered species, and so you need to carefully think through how they're going to mate and how they're going to repopulate and how we're going to get enough of this species back again. How are we going to get enough of this tribe? And there's this careful planning, and the elders come up with a great plan. Let's go to Jabesh Gilead. The town that didn't come up into the battle at Mizpah. Now listen, we're not told why Jabesh Gilead didn't come out. We don't know. Maybe they didn't get their body part in the mail. We don't know. They may not have known what was going on, but in any case, they're not even given the courtesy of someone going and saying, why didn't you come up? Which is interesting, because Benjamin, the criminals, had received word ahead of time, hey, if you give up the criminals, we won't won't bring this wrath on you. Jabesh Gilead doesn't even get that kind of grace. They're just totally wiped out, man, woman, and child, except for the virgin girls. 400 of them. Their math is pretty good. 400 is not enough for 600. So they got to get another 200. So they say, hey, there's a feast of Yahweh coming up in Shiloh, which is where the ark is in this time. So why don't you go up and kidnap some wives from there and we'll cover it up for you with the people of that town. So they go and they kidnap their wives. We've gone from one woman being violated to 600. We've gone from one tribe participating in this sin that looks a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah to every single one of the tribes. And at the end of it, of all of this suffering, each of them goes off to their inheritance. This is a problem. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, Moses had given them instructions. He had said, if there are such worthless fellows as the worthless fellows in this text and a city goes after sin this kind of a way, then he says, you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently and behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to Yahweh your God. It shall be a heap 
forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand that Yahweh may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you. See, the multiplication business is Yahweh's business, not yours, right? He shall multiply you as he swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of Yahweh your God, keeping all his commandments that I'm commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of Yahweh your God. But the people of Israel who had begun to respond with outrage now cover up the outrageous crime. They rebuild the cities. They repopulate the town. This is their approach to fixing the problem. That's what happens. We're left in utter disaster. So our vision test then, what are we supposed to see? What does the author here want us to see in these concluding words of judges? The first thing you need to pass your test is this. You need to see here, here, you need to see yourself. You just see yourself. In, in Judges chapter 21 and verse 24, this phrase is written for us. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. That's a phrase that should be familiar to the reader of the book of Judges as it closes because it's a phrase that was used at the close of the book of Joshua when the people were entering the land with all the promise and all the expectation and all the hope of here we go into the land and we're going to bring conquest. We're going to move into Canaan. We're going to rule Canaan. Here we go. Every man to his own inheritance. It was in the midst of Joshua saying to them, you should choose this day who you're going to serve because you can't go between two houses. You can't serve these other gods and serve Yahweh. And the people were devoted and they swore up and down, even though Joshua pushed back and they said, no, we will serve him. We will serve him. We will follow him. We will obey him. We will do what he says. And so Joshua makes a covenant And he says, you will be witnesses against yourself. And the rock here on which I'm making sacrifices will be a witness against you if you do not fulfill all these words. And so every man, it says, in verse 28 of Joshua 24, every man went to his own inheritance. So why is that significant here? Here we're seeing a people who began full of resolve for good. Joshua says, you guys have blown it in the past. Are you sure you want to sign up for this? And they say, yeah, we're full of faith. We're full of commitment and zeal. This time, God, this time I'm going to get it right. I'm going to follow. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to obey your commands. I'm going to do what's pleasing in your sight. This time I am resolved. But look at where the resolve ended up. We're told in this passage that the priest who was serving in that day was the grandson of Aaron, which means we're just probably a hundred years into their time in Israel. And this is already how far they've come. This is a people who were full of resolve, but a people who totally blew it. In other words, they're us. you've tried to live for God for any season of your life, you've known these times where you've said, God, this time, this time, this time, and you're full of resolve. But your strength and your decision and your resolve, where does it lead? It leads to failure. Just like them. But you say, wait a second, hold on. Yeah, okay, I mess up, but I'm not, I'm not like this bad. Like I'm not there where these guys are. And I hope that's true. But I also want to maybe push back on that a little bit in at least two ways. One of which is this. I, I love being in high places. I'm a little bit weird like that. I'm not afraid of heights. 
I get kind of exhilarated by them. But one of the things that I've noticed over the last several years that's been really bizarre, my mind does all kinds of bizarre things, here's one of them, is, is when I get to the edge and when I look over, whether it's on a, at, at a friend's condominium and I'm looking over the balcony from way up high, whether we're at Niagara Falls, and you're, you get as close to the edge as you can and you're looking down and you realize in that moment as you look down, you haven't gone over, but you're so close. And in my mind, I think, I, just one move, one step, one slip, someone gives me a shove, and I'm, I'm just thinking, what happens? I could go. I could go. I don't know why. It gets caught in my head. But what the author of Judges is trying to do for us is not throw us over the ledge, but bring us to the ledge and say, look down. Look what could be. And realize the way the author tells this narrative, everyone is anonymous. No one has a name The reason is every man and every woman in this story is every man. It could be you. That's the way you're supposed to read it. The one thing that brought the Israelites back up again eventually, like a bungee cord from their fall, is the same cord that so far has kept you from going over the edge. And it's the cord of God's grace. We need to see if we're staying back, if we haven't gone that far, it's not because we're better, but because the Lord has held us back. If we were given over to our sin, we would be no better. The second way I want to qualify that or respond to saying we're not as bad as them is to say that we need to be really careful about how quickly we become judgmental. See, we read a text like this and we kind of scoff at them, these ancient people. They think they need to gather together and go in and lay conquest of these towns and destroy them. But we who scoff at them need to realize that if there's a modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah, or modern-day Gibeah, it's Toronto. It's our city. For all of our pride and all of our boasting and our sexual proclivities, for all of our doing what's right in our own eyes and pursuing our freedom, we live here. Then we need to realize that while we mock their civil war, in the very moment we're mocking them for their civil war, we're standing silent in the face of oppression all around us, blind to the evil and atrocities that are being committed throughout our city. And even where we do become aware of them, we say, why don't the politicians do something? These people may have responded wrongly, but at least they were responding. We scoff at them, say, oh yeah, look at them off going and getting wives in these barbaric and foolish ways. We need to realize that while we don't go out and steal girls while they're dancing in vineyards... How many of us are willing to go online and virtually steal the virginity and the innocence and the beauty and the mental and physical health of the tens of thousands of women who are engaged in the making of pornography for our viewing pleasure? And we need to realize that while we mock them, At least they were going for wives. We are content among ourselves to simply go online and find digital concubines and pixelated prostitutes and find that to be pleasing in our eyes. All of a sudden it appears that this people isn't so far removed from us after all. They failed to do well in living for God according to their resolve. We failed to do that too. But the other thing that's sad here that I see that reminds me of me 
is it says every man went to his inheritance. And in that is communicated this. They thought that where they were was okay. They thought that where they were was about all that they could expect. They had grown accustomed to the inheritance that they had. They were pleased with the country the way it was. Yeah, there's cities that we haven't conquered. And yeah, there's idols on every street corner. And yeah, people are going after their own pleasures. And yeah, there's injustice rampant through the land. But you know what? At least, at least we're here. We're trying to make a go of it. They'd become dulled by what they'd seen so that they began to expect less. They'd been so long in their compromise with their eyes so full of the world that that they'd lost sight of the beauty of the glorious inheritance that had been promised to them. If they only could have caught sight of that again, the inheritance that had been laid out for them in God's word, in its fullness, and its beauty, then they could have been motivated by the promise to live different in the present. You see yourself there? I know I do. We've been told that we've been raised with Christ and seated already now in the heavenly places. We've been told that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we've become partakers of the divine nature so that the fruits of the Spirit aren't just something you make on a poster and put on your wall, but your life ought to be full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. These are promises that have been given to us that we can experience by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We've been given a promise of a place In God's presence where there is fullness of joy. At his right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. But so many days I'm content to just try to get my to-do list done. Get my lawn mowed. Try to get my bills paid. Maybe someday I'll evangelize someone. And we get so weighed down with our current experience that we lose sight of the promise of what we are supposed to experience. We end up just like them, wandering off to our inheritance, thinking we know what that means, while being fantastically blind to the truth of what we've been promised. It's a sad picture, but it's a picture of me. And I thank you too. We're going to pass our vision test. We should read this narrative and we should see ourselves. Second thing we should see is this. Here in this narrative, we should see, you should see your sin. You should see your sin for what it is, for what it does, for what it has become, for how it works. One of the things that stunned me over these past few months in studying through the book of Judges is how timeless it is. I mean, all scripture is God-breathed, right? It's useful for teaching. It's useful for us. But this has overwhelmed me in a new way. This phrase here, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's sending a powerful statement. For society to function like this, for me to be allowed to do what's right in my eyes and you to be allowed to do what's right in your eyes, it requires an agreement between us that you just do what you want to do, whatever makes you happy, as long as it doesn't hurt me or impose on me. And so the number one value for us becomes personal freedom. It becomes human autonomy. The right of say-so, the right to do what's right in my eyes becomes the ultimate value. We don't need laws, we don't need kings, we don't need governments, especially not moral laws to tell us what to do. That was Iron Age morality. It's also our morality in the 21st century. There are lots of problems with that. One of them is this, the whole thing is hogwash to assume that anything you can do, you can do in private and it won't affect other people. The reality that this text 
shows us is that we're all bound together. So there's nothing you can do, whether privately in your bedroom or filing your income taxes or eating or drinking that won't affect others. Have you ever had a fight where it just seems like things from some, for some way, they just go bad to worse. And by the end of it, you're sitting there and you know you're angry at this other person and you know they're angry at you, but you can't even remember what got the whole thing started in the first place? Or has that just happened to me? If you have, then you can maybe relate to this text because by the time you get to the end of Judges 21 and all the evil that has happened with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who've been slaughtered in the civil war in Israel and the question of what's right and what's wrong through this whole thing, the rape and the dismemberment of a woman, the the, the pursuit of this rape and sexual abuse of this man, all of these things, and we're left wondering, how in the world did we get here? Do you know how this fight started? Look at chapter 19 in verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. A man makes a poor relational decision. See, you take a concubine because, one, you already have wives and you're just looking for something a little extra on the side with one of your servants, or because... You just, hey, you know what? Marriage is kind of for the birds and we don't really need to go through that whole official business to function as if we're married. And so you just take a concubine and that's what he's done. It is a poor decision, but it's personal, it's private, it's in his own eyes, it's just his. And then what does she do? I think the best way to understand verse two is actually the footnote in the ESV that she became angry with him, maybe because he was being a jerk and wouldn't marry her, and she goes to stay in her father's house. This whole thing that ends in bloody civil war and the wiping out of a whole tribe starts with a man making a poor relationship decision and his woman getting angry and leaving him. Everyday private decisions. If you've read the book of Judges, you've seen this pattern before. Gideon takes for himself many wives has 70 sons, and then takes a concubine and has one more son, Abimelech, who then slaughters the 70 other sons and leads the nation into civil war. Gilead made a private decision. What was right in his own eyes? He went into a prostitute. He had Jephthah. Jephthah, who then sought power over his brothers and again led the nation into civil war. That time, 42,000 of the tribe of Ephraim were wiped out. In the chapters before this story, there's a story of a man named Micah who stole some money from his mom. No big deal. In the end, he returned it. But then that silver ended up being used to make an idol. And then that idol was stolen from him by some people from the tribe of Dan who took it up to the city of Dan and made that a center of idolatry that persisted until exile in 722. Hundreds of years of God's people being led astray into idolatry because one man made a stupid decision to steal his money from his mom. See, in the beginning, God said, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That was true in the beginning. It was true in Judges 21, and it's true today. Sin doesn't want to help you, Sin wants to rule over you. It doesn't want a little bit of you. It wants all of you. It promises life, but it delivers death. It promises glory, but it brings shame. It holds out freedom with open hands only to lock you up with shackles the moment you reach for it. Sin says whatever you do in private affects only you, but that is never the case. See, the great danger of sin is exactly like cancer. It's not so much in the first appearing in an isolated place. 
But the fear is that that disease will spread to any part of the body at any point until it spreads sufficiently that the whole body dies because of what started in one place. Somewhere along the line, this Levite made a decision to take a concubine instead of a wife. Somewhere along the line, she made a decision to leave him. Somewhere along the line, some men in Gibeah decided to start pursuing sexual pleasure outside of what God had prescribed for them. Somewhere along the line, the people decided to respond in outrage. And somewhere later, they decided to change their minds. People are making decisions, what is right in their eyes, and it affects everyone. So what decisions have you made today? This week? This year? How did you make those decisions? Did you evaluate what was right in your eyes? Or did you seek to discern what is pleasing in Yahweh's sight? One of the ways you can do this is by seeking counsel. See, if your scale, if you're concerned that your scale is going to be not calibrated properly, go to someone whose scale is, someone with some outside perspective. I had a young man from our church come to me this week out of the blue and say, hey, here's my budget. Can you talk this through with me? Am I, am I pleasing God? Are my decisions right? Are they in line with his will? You know how full of joy that made me? To say, here's a young man who wants his decisions to be pleasing in the sight of Yahweh, so he's seeking counsel from someone he trusts. Do you do that with your decisions? Or do you think that your private things are yours, and so you keep them close? Why would I open up like that? Why would I share something so private as these decisions with someone else? The reason is because any one of us could be this Levite. Any one of us could be this concubine making these decisions, responding in anger. And I don't want to be the one that leads us into civil war. But my sin wants to do that. You see what sin does? If you see it clearly, you see this. My sin, which tempts me in private, is seeking an opportunity to harm you. And your sin, which tempts you in private, is seeking an opportunity to harm these people. When everyone does what is right in his own eyes, it ends up being wrong in the eyes of Yahweh. You see where it leads a society as a whole? It's a problem. It's a problem that's described again for us, the last verse in verse 25 of chapter 21. Here's the third thing, the final thing to see. If we're going to pass our vision test, the last thing we need to see here is this. You need to see your Savior. In those days, there was no king in Israel. That means a couple things. One of the things it means is this. One of, the peop- one of the things that we're prone to is we're prone to blame our leaders. Later on in the history of the people of Israel, they're going to be prone to want to blame their leaders. Oh, look, it must be the kings. The kings have led us astray. They've, they've done things wrong. Before that, it was Moses. Moses led us astray. The author of Judges is saying, hey, look, you guys made these decisions. You don't need a king to lead you into sin. You got there just fine on your own. But it also means this. That in fact we do need a king, not to lead us into sin, but to lay down the law and to help us to walk in covenant fidelity, to intercede for us, to lead us, to bring justice for us, to redeem us, to reveal to us God's wisdom. As the story of the people of Israel unfolds from this point on, you you get close early on with a couple guys, with David, man after God's own heart, but... 
His hands are too bloody to hold on to the hammer to build God's temple. And so maybe it's his son, Solomon, who comes and writes the Proverbs and reveals this wisdom. And there's, there's, there's peace in his day and the temple is built and it seems like it could be him, but he also goes astray. And then it goes downhill from there. One after another, as you read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, as the authors evaluate the reigns of the kings, do you remember the refrain that they use? He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. So what does that mean then for us? Because it's one thing at the end of Judges to say, oh, look, they're waiting for a king. But then when the kings come, the kings don't actually deliver. In fact, they kind of just lead the people back into more and more sin. So that by the end of the whole Old Testament, we find we're in the same spot we are in 2125 at the end of Judges. There's still no king in Israel. But between here and there, there's prophets. And the prophets come and they denounce the kings and they challenge the kings and they rebuke the people and they call them to faithfulness. So what did the prophets do? When the kings didn't deliver, did they give up hope? I want to show you what one prophet did. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to read a few verses here, so I want you to see it. Isaiah, who ministered during the reign of several kings and saw there was salvation in none of them, did he give up hope on Yahweh's king who is to come? This is his vision. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For, here's the reason. Here's what this king will bring. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. Yeah. In Judges, There is no king in Israel. And even when a human king would come, it wouldn't be enough. But in our day, there is a king who has come. Jesus Christ came full of the Holy Spirit who descended on him in his baptism. Jesus Christ who announced the coming of the kingdom, who taught in righteousness and justice, who showed mercy to the weak and compassion to the poor. He showed us Yahweh like never before, showing us finally what it means that God is love when he obeyed the Father and laid down his life for sinners like us. A king in love lays down his life and then in victory over the enemies, leading his people in victory, rising on the third day, having defeated his enemy, Not Canaanites, but death. And where he is proclaimed in all the nations, when we go and make disciples of all the nations, 
The earth is being filled with the knowledge of the glory of God revealed in the face of our King, Jesus Christ. That's the vision that Isaiah had. The king is greater than any human king could ever be. That vision is still true today. I want to show you why this is amazing. Two things that are amazing about this at the end of Judges. One is this. In all of this mess, one of the questions we could ask is, where is God? How is he at work? Why isn't he doing something? In Judges chapter 1, when the people were going to go up into the land, they cast lots, and Yahweh said, Judah goes up first. In Judges chapter 20, at the end of all of this sin and all of this disaster, they cast lots, and Yahweh says, Judah, go up first. You know why? He's whispering for those who have ears to hear. He's writing between the lines for those with eyes to see. From Judah will come your deliverance, your leader, your king. God's providence is working in mysterious and marvelous ways. In all of the fallenness that we cannot understand to bring his king and his kingdom. The second thing that's amazing about this is, yeah, okay, so the promised king is coming from the tribe of Judah. This is the promise, and God in his providence is making it this amazing thing, but for whom does the deliverer come? This king who's going to bring salvation, for whom does he come? This people... Are you kidding me? By the time you get to the end of the book of Judges and you read what they've done and how they've acted and the ways that they've behaved, if it was me, I'd be tempted to say, just drop a bomb on the whole place, be done with a lot of them. Why are you enduring this, God? Just move on, start something new. That's the way I would act. But here is his mercy and his love to sinners. No matter how broken and how messed up we become to the very depths of our depravity, his mercy endures. To a people who commit themselves to spending their lives pursuing what's right in their eyes and wrong in his, his mercy endures. If his mercy endures to the end of Judges 21, if his mercy endures to the time of Christ, if his mercy has endured until 2015, then friend, it endures for you. If you see yourself here and you see your sin, then please ask God to open your eyes that you would also see your Savior king who's finally come to step out and stand in between his people and and not perverted sexual rebellion but the wrath of God and stand between and take it all and die but then rise again to bring this kingdom to pass for sinners like us. Do you see your savior? Your eye bones connected to your heart bone if your eyes are determining so that your heart decides how you live and what you believe, then it's imperative that we pass this check. Do you see yourself in the broken and the weak? Do you see your sin and what it does to you and to others? And do you see the Savior, the King that God provides in mercy? If you see that, How will you respond? Let's pray. Father, we long to know more of this king. We long to know more of this kingdom. We long to experience it. We long to know your peace and your joy in the midst of a perverted and broken and rebellious world that we've created. So Father, have mercy on us. Open our eyes. Grant that we would see.
Grant that we would joyfully live for our King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.